you always Pilates ready? Pilates ready? Is that different from being gym ready? Yeah, you said this, you said this morning you were Pilates ready. Well, I think psychologically I was ready to step into the class and do it. Physically, right. clearly I'm not. I, don't, I think, I, I think physically short. I'm ready. I could go on a treadmill, I can mm. lift weights, I can do it because I'm comfortable because I've done them. That's uh, my comfort zone. If I was required to be Pilates ready today, I think I would be preparing myself to be heading towards the back corner of the room what do you mean, what do you mean wearing a leotard uh, very much so yeah probably like a leopard, see, a leopard like print one a leotard. no you wouldn't like to see I that think, no i think i might you think you would yeah it would have to be slightly baggy fit otherwise it well, would be quite offensive yeah. looking really just when, yeah. when you said you were pilates ready it reminded me there's a great line in parts of parts and recreation the excellent american yeah, sitcom i'm a very big fan yeah. of that you told me a lot about that and i just completely ignored you in which aziz ansari's character says that life is black tie optional which i think is true it is you should we should all literally i mean i'm wearing black tie now and yes, that's why I'm wearing black tie we feel a little bit yeah. awkward that uh, Andy is Pilates ready but we're all but in I mean, full tux I mean you can be psychologically <laughs> Pilates that's what I think and, and life yeah. is about that isn't it being psychologically ready just could to do Pilates at any time yes. could, you, could you do Pilates right now um, do you want me to um, who wouldn't yeah a major mm. celebrity doing Pilates in someone's front room. <laughs> a major celebrity, you say? That's what I said. That we could photograph and... Do you know why it's called Pilates? Like, this sounds like a Facebook Live contribution <laughs> yeah. to the set. I don't think... You, oh, that, is that uh, yoga? You don't want to see my downward-facing dog, do you? No. <laughs> you don't that's, want to see my upward-facing <laughs> dog. You really don't want to see that. Do you know why it's called Pilates? <laughs> oh, uh, because of Joseph Pilates? Yeah, I never yeah. knew he was just a guy. Yeah, He's Dave just a Yoga. Guy. Extraordinary stuff. Dave Yoder. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, wasn't, wasn't he called Joseph Pilots and he just made Pilots. himself fancy? I read his... Uh, this, I was given, my wife gave me a book. It's fascinating reading. It really is. It's not a top of the uh, the coffee table book. It's one to... It's uh, one that you hide out of the, the way. At the moment, it is on the coffee table. But it's, it is very interesting. It's about lifestyle. Uh, Rory, you're very keen on this type of thing. On lifestyle. You a very healthy lifestyle. I have a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Lifestyle. Yeah, I have yeah, a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can come down the gym with me. I'll take you in with the, the big guys, and we can do some. We can do some lifting. He's hurt his knees. I think that would be. I've hurt my knee. I've chinched yeah, my you knee. You have other parts of your butt. What? I've chinched my knee. What does that mean? It's it means you damage your knee. It means oh. that he'll need at least eleven operations. You've done a chin. <laughs> What's wrong with it? Do you think? Well, you think it's cartilage, don't you? But I don't think it is. No. I think it's just it's just seventy five percent chinched. How do you think <laughs> it's not just you're old and knackered? Yeah. And possibly. You shouldn't yeah. Be I think it might have been because I saw some amazing goals in football. Last night, did it happen it when you were scoring one? Talkers, talkers. Almost through. certainly, I did, little, I did little else, but tell us about goals. the volley from the halfway line. Just sort of, just ball, ball comes sort of is art over me, over me beautifully. Five mm. aside to the halfway and line, exactly it's ten yards away, ten nets. But just when you catch it, but I don't know if you've, you've ever caught a volley plum. Did the, did the ball come at you, or was it <laughs> dropping over? It was dropping shoulder. over my shoulder. What do you mean if I caught a volley? You've done it a clearance into my own net. Did you ever score any own goals? Oh, I scored some absolute beauties. One of good. Some Park gets Nottingham Forest from a corner. I was on the end of the six yard box getting ready. Ball gets it's an in swinging corner. I absolutely batter it into the back <laughs> of the net. No idea why I did that. No idea. You, were, you had visions of Rory Smith from the halfway line. Yeah. Yeah. This really interests me. When you store an own goal mm. as a professional elite athlete, yes. do you feel as though you've you've done something wrong or is the first your first instinct to blame like somebody else or the wind or something uh, the wind so the wind was wrong you, what, did you did you did you many managers you there, was a sudden, there was a sudden gust <laughs> yes as Neville Southall blew off knocked <laughs> <laughs> me off balance and I headed it into my no no there was no place to hide even I was ashamed for myself are you mercilessly ribbed afterwards by your chums it depends because we lost that game Does, did John Ebrill oh John Ebrill was show you no quarter 
We used to call him the doll's head because he had a head like a doll. <laughs> uh, he, um, he did. That was you know, a fairly self-explanatory uh, nickname. Was, sorry, I know yes, some footballers' yes. nicknames really well, no, do need a little bit of a backstory. Sometimes they, they can get a bit sexual. You've got to be careful with these things because with these nicknames that players give other players, they, they tend to go down the naughty sexual route at times. I, I won't, I won't what's, elaborate what's any more. What's sexual about chinch? <laughs> What's not sexual about Chinch? Well, it's all right because I gave him that nickname, so it's all right. That's not sexual, is it? It's not sexual. No, I didn't way, know you well enough. No, 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 no. Did you, did I, you I, I can't Chinch? Yeah. Can't. yeah. Does anybody else call you Chinch? They started to. It's actually yeah. started to dawn. Well, you it's used to movement. be Hinch or Hinchy. They call me, yes. So your teammates call you Hinchy. Uh, I, work, I don't really know, but I work for Sky <laughs> and um, <laughs> top broadcasters. And um, they tend to call me award winning, just not me. They call me Hinchy, but now they're starting to, because I call myself it. Yeah. They started to realise. Oh, wait a minute! You refer to yourself as chin. Yes, because but then it's self-deprecating, isn't it? Because my chin is huge. Quite, it's big. <laughs> it's on the big side. I'd probably say huge. So then they they play along with it now, and they realise. Yes, you do have a massive chin. So we'll do, have you got a nickname? Have you ever had a nickname? Yes. Um, at school, I was Fez. Fez, okay. Yeah. Um, your, your choice of hat? Uh, because I'm a, a big fan of Moroccan headwear. If um, I get confused because his, um, me and his old school friend Matt who has the most ludicrous nickname because he's Matt Bailey and they all call him Bill. Bill Bailey. Bill, Bill Bailey. Bailey. Bill Bailey. Either he, from the comedian or the uh, 1950s, I think, song Won't You Come Home, Please, Bill Bailey. He, st- he still calls Hugh Fez. So as we are um, communicating Hugh regarding Fez. stag-related issues, he's mm. constantly referring to Fez. Yeah, but I want to call you... I said you... Wyo. I want to call you Wyo. I like that. I've, no? never, I've never really had a nickname. Can Wyo I call you Wyoming? I've never really had a nickname. <laughs> like Wyoming? Wyoming. Wyoming's Wyoming. quite good, yeah. Do you like that or not? It breaks what? the rule of nicknames, which is it has to be. So, it kind of has to be shorter than the alternative. Were you, you smudge? So what were People you then? occasionally call me smudger, but if I'm honest, I don't like it. What What would you like? I'd like to be called Mr. Smith. <laughs> to you, or Sunshine. What about the Roarinator? <laughs> the Roarinator. Again, yeah. longer. My best mates, my very best mates, my oldest mates, call me Rodders. Rodders. Yeah, yeah. But I don't really like that either. Because you play football like Nicholas Lindhurst. No? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes it is. Great yes. grace. Yes. Welcome to the world of Set Piece Menu, <laughs> the podcast where four friends talk football over food. On this episode, we will be enjoying afternoon tea on account of the fact that it's the afternoon and we're drinking tea. There is not a cucumber sandwich in sight or a scone or scone. Who says scone? Who says scone? I say scone no, because say it's scone, the obvious thing to do, but apparently that's the posh thing, isn't it, saying scone? I say scone. Scone. Sounds like somebody you might have played alongside at Sheffield Wednesday. Very good centre-half in uh, Argentina, Augustus really? Scone. Very good. Each time the four of us get together, we tend to talk about one footballing subject for around about half an hour or so. I say half an hour. We can be as ill-disciplined as Andy Hinchcliffe was at Chasing Back. Uh, joining the marauding former left-back and me, Hugh Ferris, your humble host, are Rory Smith of the New York Times. And Steve Wyeth of the BBC and BT Sport. He limits himself to working only for organisations with the letter B in their name. So if B&M's ever started a TV channel. Uh, the issue we'll be discussing on this edition has been succinctly titled The Script. Not the late 2000s tame Irish rockers, but this question. Why does football seem to so often follow the script? Steve will explain in conjuring up somebody we've already mentioned on the podcast today. Yes, the today. aforementioned Matt Bill Bailey. Via has contributed. Says, the script, why is it on so many big occasions in football does a team or player in the limelight score or win a game, often in dramatic circumstances? Is that simply a myth or do we believe it really happens? Is it more a question of teamwork and ethic or is it down to those individual players involved? 
does, does this sort of thing also relate to new signings, debutants, players coming back from injury, players scoring against their former teams? Is there such thing as, uh, for example, a bogey team or players who always do well against you? And this has sort of been inspired by the idea that uh, these great, illustrious players somehow seem to be able to sort of raise their game for the big occasion. And as mm. so often, uh, they are the players who before the game are the focus of the media attention and afterwards have written the headlines. You do tend to get it that you find that a player who's been in the news for for some negative thing that they've done, they've they've eaten a giraffe or they've, you know... <laughs> oh, yeah, those giraffe robbed eaters. one of their teammates' houses or something like that. You, you do tend to find that when they're under pressure and that the limelight is on them, they do... You do think, oh, how surprising they've scored the winner or, you know, they've done this, that or the other... But it, I suspect it's all confirmation bias. So, on the occasions when a, a player scores against his former club, or you know, on his debut, mm. or when he's been in the news for a week, it stands out in the memory, mm. and you think, oh yeah, of course that happened. You know, Rooney scored the last-minute winner in the Manchester derby with the overhead kick against Man, against Man City. The season after he tried to join them, or there'd been all that connect, all those, all that talk, that sort of thing. Jamie Vardy scores two for Leicester. The, the day after, mm-hmm, or the mm-hmm. game after Ranieri's been sacked, when he's allegedly been the one who's been the problem. That, that happens rarely. It does happen, no question. But the reason it seems like a pattern is because all of the times it doesn't happen don't stand out in the memory. We, we're not taking a fair sample. We're taking the most memorable events and turning them into a pattern. That's confirmation bias. Are you trying to say that we don't have a situation where the morning after Wayne Rooney doesn't score in a Manchester derby, we uh, we don't have Andy Hinchcliffe on the Sky Sports News <laughs> HQ sofa <laughs> analysing uh, the, the Wayne Rooney contribution to a game he didn't score in? All, all, the, all the debutantes who don't score yeah. on their debuts, all the former players who don't, don't score, score against, against their former clubs, clubs yeah. you're, you're remembering the, the exceptions rather than the rule. What I, would I, say, I find them interesting is the bogey teams or bogey grounds because these yeah. things happen again and again and again. Like you said, they're not just one-offs that we do remember. I think you are right on that one. But I do remember as a player going to certain grounds, Selhurst Park, whatever, and you know and the players know that this is not a place where things usually go well. It doesn't matter whether it goes all the way back to the 50s and that. You just think, oh, this is the way it's going to be. Is that true? The players they do, absolutely. So it's confirmation bias yes. for players as well. So I hate yeah. it on Match of the Day when you get the bits of commentary, and I know that there are illustrious television commentators who there listen are. to this as well as appear on it. Yeah. Uh, not least... Well, sat Conor, around this very table. Yeah. Conor McNamara. <laughs> yes. The, the lilting Irishman of, B- of BBC Radio 5 Live and Match of the Day fame. Conor doesn't do this, but some of his colleagues do, where they'll say... West Bromwich Albion, of course, are at Sunderland today. They've only won here four times since 1976. And as if to say that the players are in the dressing room saying, oh, bloody hell. They do. <laughs> no. In 77, we got beaten 4-1. Well, no, not, not in 77, but they'll know it's a place. They won't necessarily... But people, it'll be the talk that this is a place where we normally find it very hard. Or but the that, club that find team it itself, so mm. that, within the last five years, yes. probably. But uh, not the club. Not like... No, yeah, the, surely the club because you're going further back, aren't you? You're surely going, you're going way back. So you're not you're not saying, well, we didn't do well here last season than the season yeah. before. And mm. a couple I can of, believe you know, that. I yeah. can understand that, but I can't understand why. No, you're the historical thinking. thing is it, it is. I, I remember it myself. Well, you're all weak-minded right, yeah. then. I was, yeah. <laughs> so hang you on, know hang that, on, though, hang don't on. you? You're telling what? me that Joel Robles, for example has studied Everton's form at certain rounds since the 1950s and cares about No, it. he won't know the specifics. Uh, but he might have a general idea that when we play... It will be the talk because there'll be old people that have been at the club, the kit men or whatever, and it'll be something. And obviously all the stats that are produced as well. Because players occasionally do read information about the games that they're playing in. I know it's crazy, but it does... Players do think about those things and they do feel maybe anything we do today 
it's just going to be one of those days because it seems to have been one of those days over the last 50 years and players are aware of it so that's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's what that yeah. is that's it. That's the players thinking we've only won here twice in 50 but the, years. But that's that uh, self-fulfilling prophecy is confirmation confirmation bias when you're actually self-responsible confirmation for, yeah. bias. Yeah. yeah. The problem here is you're using words that I don't understand. Oh, rubbish, chin. Joe Rob Leswood. You went well, to you think school? he really would? Yeah. I did go to grammar school, yes. Exactly, you yes. understand these words. But then, Perfectly what I used well. to think was we've had a terrible record here, Joe Robles, over the past 50 years. Let's put it right. My big, gorgeous, goalkeeping chum. And that's what we used to do. So I was actually incredibly strong. I remember there's many, many games. I can't remember any of them. Where my strength of mind would have driven my team on to break the course of history. So That's what I'm remembered for, really. So instead of a statistical thing, it's it's a mental attitude yes. and overcoming that mental attitude. So yes. if, we, if we take another example, players scoring against their former clubs, and I appreciate that there's the confirmation bias angle that we need to, to we, consider. Everything, yeah, we can, we, can still, we can still talk about this stuff. We just need to be aware of confirmation bias. It, it, it hangs as an umbrella over all of us. So the thing about all former all clubs is, and you'll both found, both found this, this is, this is not directed at you because you are a former footballer. But when you speak to players, they all support... The clubs, all the clubs they've played for. So Jermaine Jennings, yes. probably the finest co-coms in Britain at the moment. Yes, on te- certainly on television. Supports like Spurs, and f- he's a Forest fan, but he supports Spurs. He supports yeah. Newcastle. It's that looking, looking for their result thing. He supports QPR. They all love all their former clubs. I'm, I'm often when I'm working with with co co commentators before a game that we're com- they're often going through. If if we're doing an evening game together, for example, they're going through the results. From early on in the yeah, day, yeah. through all of the divisions in which their former teams have played in, yeah, I don't. Uh, assessing them, absorbing them. Oh, yeah, but you don't like that's the job that I'm doing. I want to give absolutely everything <laughs> to the commentator I'm working with. But would, would it have meant a lot to you had you scored against a former club? Were you motivated to score Tricky. against your former club? Yes, because I did. I scored for Everton against Manchester City, and I took. Did you I celebrate? enjoyed it. That I did, but then I felt bad because I was. It was very selfish. Because I felt the club had sold me, even though I was very happy to move to Everton, wonderful club, and scored. I did feel a little bit bad about that. And then when I went back to Everton with uh, Sheffield Wednesday, I didn't score, but we, we won at Goodison. And the crowd were brilliant to me. We won 2-1. And that kind of guaranteed we wouldn't go down, but it put Everton in a real problem position. There was a chance they were going to get relegated. And I felt terrible about that as well. So, of course, you want to go back and do well, and you want to win, but you don't want to put your the team that you used to play for in a bit of a pickle. It must depend on the context in, in which you leave, though. It, if you're like, like Chinch, if you're yeah. the sort of player who was beloved at all of his Well, there was fans clubs. grabbing onto my ankles as I got into my uh, Just Austin Allegro. Well, like some sort of, <laughs> some sort of zombie movie. The yes. undead were Don't grabbing leave. at you. And I say, I have to. Howard Kendall doesn't like me. Why was this, why was this game being played in the 1960s? <laughs> Lying down, they were lying down Chinch, in front Chinch of my mini dis- maestro. Chinch is dis- <laughs> it was amazing. It wasn't just football fans. There was small children there, the elderly. As, it as, was. I appealed across the board. As you were, so many. As you were getting, didn't even support the club I played for. Local MPs. <laughs> it was amazing. Liverpool fans <laughs> praying with each other. <laughs> as, as you, as you, as you made your way to your gull-winged two CV. <laughs> Surely. To return to, to sensible points, it depends on the content, context in which you leave. So, if, like with Chinch, where there was no rancor to his departure, I can understand that you would feel kind of guilty, happy to do well. You want to show the former your, yeah. your former club, like when you see your ex girlfriend, you want to show that you're you're not become a tramp. 
that you're the, doing better than you actually, ever were when you were with I her. Against, I nearly signed for Tottenham and it fell through for one reason or another. And then Sheffield Wednesday went to Tottenham and I scored a free kick. We won 3 0. And I remember when that. Did you give it some? said, that'll teach you. That's what you could. And I remember saying it to myself after it had gone in. Isn't that a dreadful thing? But I, again, I wanted to prove yeah. a point. If you leave under a cloud. A cloud? Yes. Zlatan and, Zlatan and Barca say you can understand why there would be an extra motivation to, to play well. Mm. I get that. I think that. I think that's a fairly obvious script to return to the subject of the script. That makes sense. That if, you, if you're sold against your wishes or you fall out with the manager and you have to leave, like Howard Kendall and Chinch, then I can understand why you'd want to go back and stick one or two fingers up at them. And that would add to your mm-hmm. performance. I can believe that. What about one of the other things that happens or seemingly tends to happen only when it happens and we have the confirmation bias of telling ourselves that it happens all the time the new manager bounced because recently uh, with Sam Allardyce at Crystal Palace it, it, it hadn't happened and we did actually draw attention to it saying that Crystal Palace haven't had that new manager bounce when a new manager comes in do you it's like the new, it's like new manager led balloon wasn't it more <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit more yes. so, so mm, is, is that pick. is that something of a fallacy yeah. is that no, a script no, think, that is I, followed I do, well the feeling in the dressing room certainly is different because you feel it's kind of a fresh start whether that actually then transpires to what happens in the games I don't know because I've never really studied it and checked it but whether this is true because people do I, I talk about it all the time I think well I remember what the feeling was like but does that actually produce better results in the next five games I don't know we'd have to do some research on I that. think research has been done oh has it and I think that it is largely a myth and in those cases where it isn't a myth it is because of something very simple which is that managers get sacked because of poor runs short poor runs of four so you are a team who are expecting to finish 10th and you lose six games in a row and your manager is sacked and what happens after the manager is sacked at some point is your team regresses to the mean so it returns to the form it should be showing which looks like a new manager bounce but if you analyse it properly could well have happened with the same manager in place so you're saying that it it would be unusual for that team to lose six games on the spin anyway so the chances are their form is going to turn around or they were going to get the 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 lucky bounce or two that that turned a draw into a win or something so So it's 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 kind of a i think it probably does it looks like it happens quite a lot and you're right that when when it didn't happen with allardyce it was kind of this is odd although i think that was partly to do with allardyce and the fact that he seems to have been sort of despite all of his uh, controversies over the past 12 months he seems to have we seem to think he's some sort of magician slash religious figure. If you look at the statistics of Sam Allardyce's first seven, nine games or whatever it was, um, I think actually it wasn't that bad, comparatively mm. speaking. So it might be that Sam Allardyce doesn't have a new manager bounce. He just takes a little bit of time to get his methods across and actually the bounce comes or, a little or later. it could be that Palace's form wasn't sort of exceptional in so the sense that it wasn't unusual. It wasn't so a downturn. They didn't have yeah. a mean to regress to because they were already at the mean. They're just rubbish. That could well be the, the reason that they don't have a new manager bounce because they weren't, there wasn't kind of a, it wasn't, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of unusual or, except, yeah, different. They weren't doing something different. It wasn't anomalous. And that's it, anomalous. Very that's well, another word that Chinch knew you were here for a reason. Well done. frantically scribbling that one down. The anomalous. So we've had uh, confirmation bias. We've had self-fulfilling prophecies. The other thing to consider is the narrative. And this is where the media comes in and perhaps oh, is a little yeah. bit guilty because the media sets up a narrative and they want that narrative to, to follow through because yeah. it makes for a better story, whether it's over a long period 
period of time and in newspapers day after day or whether it's during a football match that you may well be commentating on you set something up and of course it makes you look good but also it makes sense in this beautiful story that's being told mm -hmm. for that to happen too so are we the media generally speaking again another umbrella term guilty of setting up a narrative that we're so desperate to come home to roost that we actually tend to ignore quite a lot of other we things want, that we are happening. We want a good story yes. so we yeah. hope that that story is going to happen so we set it up so when it does happen everyone's interested in it so that's what I can understand why that we, we do that we all do that it makes sense yeah and it does perpetuate doesn't it a little bit if you, you're commentating on a game you've got to be aware of the stories around the game but you're also aware that your your audience knows that as well so it would be a little bit foolish almost to ignore the fact that if, if there's a player in the build-up to the game who has been the focus of attention and he is having a large contribution on the flow of the match he might have even already scored a goal you can't pretend that that hasn't happened so that you're not you know using that confirmation bias because you're sort of you're, you're part of the storytelling yourself the, the trap to be careful not to fall into is the one where you're almost trying to force that yourself upon people which you do occasionally well there's a commentator that you and I have spoken about before yeah. that I, I won't mention the name of because it's unfair to do so Conor McNamara uh, definitely Conor <laughs> McNamara and it's lilting Irish tones um, but there is there is a sense that, that that commentator starts with a narrative that might not necessarily be hinged to a story it might be something that they have decided to set up at the beginning of the game and then everything that happens in that game will try and confirm yeah. that and it's quite frustrating to watch because you feel they're yeah. trying a little bit too hard to do so yes, what's well, the idea that for example the team is vulnerable defensively yeah. and every tiny little mistake that one of their defensive players makes will be used as you know an example further of, evidence yeah, yeah, to, yeah, well, further the evidence. best example of that is Barcelona I mean it happened it's City this season but Barcelona for 10 years there's been this idea that they are vulnerable defensively so every time they you know there's a corner it's like a corner is basically random like if you look at the the figures on corners corners don't lead to goals it's complete nonsense you should take them short but you whip a corner in, I guess like 75% of the time the defensive team will win it and 25% of the time the, an attacker will get like a head to it and most of the time it'll be a rubbish header that'll go straight up in the air and the keeper will just gather it in unless Chinch is delivering it in which says all of Fang these... He, he pointed at you about a minute and a half you. ago to say <laughs> what? So, but every time Barcelona kind of face a corner and the opposition team wins the header, whatever happens, the commentator will go, well, we know that they're vulnerable from corners. Because they're all short. Because, what, just they're <laughs> Not Spanish? the corners, the players. Because Gerard Pite is one of the best central defenders in the world. What? What do you mean they're vulnerable? You don't know they're vulnerable from corners. If you see, the, do the statistics suggest they're vulnerable from corners? It's nonsense. The, the, other th the two things that I think are important. One, if you have a player who's in the news, it's natural to an extent for a commentator not deliberately, but natural for the, for the eye to be drawn to their contributions. So it would be the case that even if the, that player was one central midfielder, even if his influence on the game wasn't quite as much as the other central midfielder, yeah. you might focus on him. And it's the same for journalists writing match reports after the, after the match. And it's much easier for the journalists because we can basically sort of you can, you can decide, yeah. You can decide on the afterwards. Game afterwards. Yeah. We can say, right, well, this, this, and this happened. It's harder to build this that how it fits narrative in. It's throughout. It's harder to do it during the game. But the other thing is that with a lot of these stories, it works both ways. So you've got a player going back to his former club. Now, either he has a great game or enough of a good game that you can spin it as a great game, and he's been inspired by being at his former club, or he's very quiet and all he was cowed on the occasion. The story, but you, you, you are allowed to get a story either way in most of these situations. So everything is, is put into a narrative because that's 
basically that's how we understand the world it's not even that's how newspapers work or how tv works that's how people understand the world people understand the world through stories so we we do sort of impose these things retrospectively retroactively on basically random chaotic events mm. like football matches. Well, I've, I've been, I've just we'll come to you in a second, Steve. I've been responsible in the past for setting up a script for a television program which said it was supposed to be about, but it ended up being about. So even when it's not about that person, yeah. you're reminding everybody that coming into the game it was supposed to be. Someone else stole the headline. Yes, exactly. Yes. Rather than just saying, well, somebody did something incredible and that's what the story's about, you still have to almost refer back to what didn't yeah. happen but because that, you feel like wrong? you need to illustrate. You're saying that's wrong. No, I'm saying it's mm. probably saying that I am responsible as much as anybody mm. in doing that, even though I get frustrated when I hear other people yeah. doing it. It's not, I don't know if it's wrong. It's, it's just a natural thing to do. It's a natural do. thing to do, yeah. yeah. It's also helping at identification points for those people watching or listening yeah. so that you're able to tell a story to them. You refer them to a point that they might already know yes, about exactly. in order yeah. to then, then tell yeah. them a story that relates to it. Yeah. It is often a lazy thing to do. And it gets to a point where the commentator that I was mentioning before, it's a frustrating thing to do as well because you're trying too hard to get your, your narrative yeah. to come to fruition. I suppose like the Wayne Rooney situation, he's not been in the United team. If he were to start for Manchester yeah, United exactly, yeah. as a commentator, co-commentator, you'd be looking at Wayne Rooney long and hard, wouldn't you, to say, well, if he scores or if he makes a goal... Or if he plays poorly, go to that. that's why exactly, he's not yes, been in the yeah. team. Well, yeah. there was a, a, a... Steve Teach on a talk. I yes, I know. You've done that to me before, so I don't feel guilty. But the... There was a, a game for Rooney before he broke the record. I can't remember who it was. It might have been United-Liverpool. And Rooney came on as a substitute. And he was still on 2-4-8 or 2-4-9, whatever it was, to just mm. level with Charlton. Yeah. And he picked the ball up about 40 yards from goal. And it turned into a gif that went over Twitter. It went viral, as they say. And Martin Tyler, who's a brilliant commentator, Martin Tyler... But Rooney was about 40 yards from goal with the Liverpool defence in front of him. And Martin Tyler said, and is this the moment that Rooney breaks the record? <laughs> and Rooney immediately passed the ball to a Liverpool player. And lots of Liverpool fans got, you saw this as proof of Martin Tyler being a United fan, which he isn't. He's, he is a, categorically not a Manchester United fan. But it, it, that was that sign of, of kind of the narrative taking over to an extent. It, everything has to be sort of built towards this moment where yes. he is going to break the record at some point. We know that. It could be now. I want to mention the record. I'm thinking about the record. Yeah, yeah. I am imposing my own narrative on, on these events in front yeah. of me. But that's also trying to work. set up the, yeah. the great piece yeah. of commentary that's planned yeah, for the next 20 years. As a commentator, you've yeah. got to be prepared for those things. Your you've got shot. to have the... You, yeah. you, you can't... Absolutely. <laughs> you don't want to be left in a position where you're going, oh, no. I can forgot Rooney to mention scored it. and I completely forgot to mention he's just broken the Manchester United goal scoring record <laughs> so you do sort of game. it does need to be on the tip of your tongue otherwise you, know. well, you, you can't that. redo it Martin Tyler does that a lot yes. if, you, if you watch his commentary he does that a lot and actually he, he's very good because of that if he gets the odd one wrong or extends it a little bit too far then you can understand it's, that little that's little sort of harnessing confirmation bias because the ones that so that will that thing where he, he got it wrong with Rooney will just it goes to the wind it's, it's yeah, yeah, irrelevant yeah. but the ones where he he gets it right and it's kind of is this the moment and then he does that thing it just happens and then he does that thing where he sounds really charmed as it's, he's basically saying yeah told you it'd be the moment he goes and there it is yes exactly yeah. as a commentator you become I'd be an amazing commentator oh, by the way he, he, yeah, yeah. he did it for Vardy's 11th goal yeah. in a row he set it up the goal was scored yeah. and it was and it was a moment where it worked because you, you become aware as a commentator of course that yeah, people are watching the match and you're hoping that they are engaged in the full 90 minutes of the match that you're commentating on but ultimately an awful lot of people absorb your work in those 
15 or 20 second sound bites yeah. of the key moments from the game. So you've got to make sure that in those 15 or 20 seconds, you've said everything that is particularly relevant to that moment. You can't bring it up two minutes later mm. and, and, yeah, and yeah, mention yeah. The, the, the context of that goal because it, uh, to, to nick a phrase you just used, that's gone to the wind. Yeah. Yeah. They're only using those 15 or 20 seconds. So if, if as a commentator, you can preempt it before the player takes the shot and then confirm it as the ball hits the back of the net. Well, you've almost got a double whammy in, in that instance. Yeah, and and it's all, it's all been compressed into a much smaller space of time, which yeah. um, I'm sure your, your bosses, the producers, the editors would be I delighted. I've started to do that myself. You'll look at again, what's happened maybe during the week, not necessarily on the field, but off the field as well. And then you'll have, once the teams are announced, you maybe have two or three players from each side and there'll be just little lines. All right. Just yeah. in case something happens yeah. with that player or that player, because you want to be again, make it relevant to maybe what people want to hear, what they want to hear and you get it right about a certain player. So I've started doing that myself as well. So you're writing down your ad-libs. So when something spectacular happens, you write on the money and you've got something really pertinent to say, not just about what happens, but in the context of what's been going on during the week. You can take that uh, to a degree which is beyond the good sense that you've just described. Can you Mm. remember back in 2002 and John Motson describing David Beckham's penalty against Argentina? Mm. It was an early morning game or mid-morning kickoff, wasn't it? And it was all about the whole narrative that he was going through throughout the game wasn't really anything to do with football. It was about the fact that everybody was eating their lunch. So when David Beckham stepped up to take the penalty, he said, have you got your forks and your knives and your plates ready? David Beckham scored and he said, and you can smash them now. So you've got to the point where you've actually pre-created mm. and rehearsed a yeah. line yeah. for a moment which makes sense with the narrative that you've developed throughout the game yeah. but it doesn't have any relevance to the actual football okay. so there probably is a, a, maybe a stage too far I don't know mm. whether people agree that, that John, yeah. John Motson did that to be memorable because we're remembering it now and it's mm-hmm. 15 years ago but perhaps it's yeah that there, there's a suggestion that your own confirmation bias is just perhaps a little bit too um, I don't remember that commentary much. because I was doing an exam during that game uh, at university and halfway through an exam it wasn't a final but it was quite an important exam the moderator because it was obviously it was it was in uh, Japan or South Korea wherever what your exam yeah no no no, no. the exam was in was in Sapporo but um, the it was in Sapporo that's right and the moderator halfway through this exam like 500 panicking students got up to the microphone at the front and went and I'd just like to inform you that it is now England 1 Argentina 0 <laughs> <laughs> and, th- and I, I wanted to know the score but I remember thinking don't tell me that, that now doesn't seem appropriate right now what was I've the got- s- subject for the exam it would have been oh, I can't remember like Greek, Falklands War. Greek literature or something Greek literature so something difficult so Perhaps something much could, more important you, than yeah. David Beckham scoring a penalty could you have tied in a, a narrative or a story from Greek literature into that match and been David Beckham it, it contains traces of all the great Greek mythical heroes well, there you go. That's see. true. But for a, sort of from the journalist's point of view, that what you're talking about commentators doing, kind of almost preempting something, making sure you're ready in case something memorable does happen, because you want to etch your own places in history. Uh, journalists don't need to bother with because we can wait till the end mm. and then and then. But you, decide we are happened. egomaniacs. But do you, do you not? Because you obviously have to uh, file reports pretty close to the whistle, full-time reports. So you, you must have some of that prepared before the game some lines that you would be keen to weave into your piece should should the should the narrative play out as anticipated isn't, isn't there a journalist who writes their entire piece before the game and just only changes it I, I, one no, of our colleagues know, there's, there's a couple of people I know who through I, I guess it more than anything a lack of a lack of self-belief or a desire to be ready because like I'm I'm quite fortunate now that I don't have to file until a couple of hours after the game because obviously our deadlines are American deadlines but 
British newspaper deadlines, especially evening games, and this sounds this sounds like journalists complaining. Everyone hates journalists complaining, but you have to file the moment the final whistle goes with 800, 900, 1,000 words that you have conjured yourself. That is quite a difficult skill. It's people, people always think being a football journalist is easy, and in many, many, many ways, it really is. But that skill itself is quite tricky to develop, and you are bad at it for quite a long time. And you get in a lot of trouble if you, if you mess it up. But How long are you allowed to stay bad at it for? Not very long, I would say. I'd say if you're bad at it consistently for... A, more than a month or two, they'll probably decide you're just not in the mirror. Have you crossed that bridge yet? Or no, no, no. <laughs> Still that's why they've stopped me doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I know a couple who kind of have an intro in mind for for the various results. So they will go into a game thinking, if this team wins, I'll do this. If that team wins, I'll do that. And if it's a draw, this is my general idea. But they'll they'll change it according to what happens. Obviously, the the benefit is that you can you're obviously aware of everything that's been going on in the build up to the week. You're aware of the fact that it might be this player's return or this this that or the other. And you, you do have that in mind. So you like commentators, we're probably watching Wayne Rooney more than we're watching yeah. Maro and Fellaini for this reason, that reason. Or, in fact, Fellaini's a quite good example. You're watching Fellaini when he comes on because you know there's this narrative around There's a potential accident waiting yeah. to happen, yeah. And or they're going to play a long ball. Or they're going to play a, a really long ball and then Mourinho's going to pretend they didn't. And so you, you're aware of all that stuff, but you then have the chance afterwards to say this is what happens in first edition match reports the ones that are the the very live stuff the stuff that you file on the whistle i would guess you get you get a lot more which not not many people will see first edition uh stuff because it's often replaced within a couple of hours but i would guess you get a lot more stuff that has been driven by by prior narratives because people are saying right this this has to be what i write because i don't have a choice the aspect of this that we've not touched upon perhaps so far is is also that the player who is picked out before the game because of their particular excellence so every time that a, an English team plays Barcelona in the Champions League there's loads of stuff in the build-up to the game about Lionel Messi and then when he inevitably scores two or three goals to win the game for Barcelona oh well we told you so and they weren't prepared and you know they didn't you know Arsenal's defence didn't prepare themselves properly for facing Lionel Messi but he does that week in yeah. week out being being forearmed as to the problem doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to deal with it being aware that Lionel Messi is a world class footballer doesn't mean that you can prepare yourself for dealing mm. with the fact is and that's the other aspect of this sort of the narrative and, and the confirmation bias that you know happened uh, ahead of the League Cup final all the stories beforehand Zlatan Ibrahimovic his first major cup final in English football and he scored two goals including the winner against Southampton and afterwards he was the player who made the headlines but he was overwhelmingly the most experienced and yeah. best player on the pitch mm -hmm. so he was the most likely match winner anyway yeah. if you're playing against somebody or were playing against somebody that you knew was very very good mm. if they for example and I would imagine it would have happened very few times they, but if yeah. they if they outdid you if they completely left you on the turf every time exposing your lack of pace exposing Again, your lack of pace ability and tactical now yeah. Yeah. Um, did you think that it was your fault or did you just sometimes just hold your hands up and go listen I knew that he was going to be good and he was good and sometimes yeah, that sometimes happens sometimes people are just too good for you and you have to accept that at times but that didn't happen with me <laughs> <laughs> not on any occasions I can't remember too many no but then again I didn't really play at the highest highest level did I International football. I can't remember anyone from Cameroon careering past me and getting across in. <laughs> but from Saudi Arabia, hey, the Saudi Arabia oh, right wing put me to the sword. But really from, a, from a club point of view, you know, did you ever come off after the game? You know, the manager had prepared you for. He is their most dangerous player. We need to make sure we deal with him, keep mm. him quiet. Mm. You came off at the end. He'd scored the winner. 
What was? I'd have to, did, I'd have to have think about that. But I can't. Deflating uh, sense, or was it a sense of well, you know, there's only so much. There's only so again, yeah. Sometimes coaches have to be sensible and say, you know, you maybe did ninety percent of it in this one occasion, and that's why they're so good, and that's that's why they're the star players and the players that we always look mm-hmm. out for. So yeah, I'm sure that would have been the case. But I I'd just like to go back to the point that I, I, the players playing against me did have a tough time. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's it's good that we finished there mm-hmm. because we started with this element of confirmation bias. We don't necessarily tend to remember the moments that go against our preconceptions. And that's very much the same with Andy Hinchcliffe because he doesn't remember any of those occasions where he wasn't an amazing left back. That's the only way I can get through the rest of my life, though, is pretending I was better than I was. Well, let's let's consider more lies now, shall we? Because actually, in, in the place of a soccer story on this edition of Set Piece Menu, um, we're going to do something that actually arose via a conversation that we were having a little while ago about Andy Hinchcliffe's Wikipedia page, because it just turns out that some of the things on there seem to us completely preposterous. We're going to ask you, Andy, if... Um, Perhaps you'd be able to confirm truth or lies right. to some of these elements of your Wikipedia page. My middle I'm, name is George. Your middle way, name is indeed okay. George. Yeah, yeah, I understand yeah. that. But I'm going to start. I'm going to start with this one, and yeah. then Rory and Steve will also chip in. It starts here under playing career. He established himself as Manchester City's first choice left back. Now, did that ever happen? Yes, of course <laughs> okay, it did. So it took Paul Power to leave. <laughs> of course it did. So we've got one truth, guys. What, what else well, do we have on this, the Wikipedia page that we'd like to is, challenge? Uh, uh, this is utterly preposterous. I can't believe it. No, nobody is going to believe that this is true. Mm. Hinchcliffe has inspired a composition by the Finnish composer Osmo Tapio Raihala, who wrote an orchestral work titled Hinchcliffe Thumper, Thumper. the Bloody Intermezzo. Yes. That's clear. Apparently he wrote. No, no, it's not. What? Apparently he wrote. I've not. I'm sure I have. Heard, I have heard a snippet of it. Duncan Ferguson. I'm sure he had one written for this him is as well. Utterly ridiculous. That as well. Yeah. No. It's, uh, this is true. It does. We should play it out on the podcast. We should get this piece of music. Do you be think it awesome. could be our theme tune? Because, I think it should uh, be our theme tune. I'm not sure about the thumper. Wasn't he the rabbit from Bambi? <laughs> I'm not sure about thumper. that. Yeah. <laughs> and why does why does the bloody intermezzo have T-H-A and then apostrophe? Is it some sort of English no, I inflection? Write it. I didn't Northern. have anything to yeah. do with it. But by the way, okay. uh, Os- Osmo's uh, Wikipedia page says his full name is Osmo Tapio Everton. Ah, well, there you ah, go, you see. I so see. the explanation yeah, yeah, is yeah. So I have, a, I have a fact that I'd like to establish whether this is true. Uh, Hinchliffe has stated that he was encouraged to take up a football career by his father, who mm. was a season ticket holder at Crew Alexandra FC. Is no, that uh, no, that isn't true at all. But again, who would go on Wikipedia and write something? Well, think, who does the, who I do, think we might have an answer, because oh, the right. final line of your personal life section, Andy, oh, no, not. is not about your many, many peccadillos. Ah. Andy is very close to his next-door neighbour, well known architect Dave Jones <laughs> the thing is the, hang on a minute Dave, is this a what? current next door neighbour yes my, my current neighbour Church Lane I'm is not called tell Dave people Jones. your address <laughs> lots of Church Lanes in the world isn't there that's true yeah ok yeah. Church Lane Soweto <laughs> <laughs> close, close uh, attention payers to this podcast will have uh, jigsaw identified your address bearing in mind how you've described your town of, uh, of I, your abode before oh, so really? I'm going to piece okay. it all together okay. Thankfully, anyway. there are enough numbers down I Church Lane for you to We had new neighbours move in, and I speak to Laura a lot, but then I just realised today 
that she is married to somebody called Dave and their surname is Jones and he is an architect. But who put that on? I, I would imagine. It's either, it's da- it's either well-known page. architect Dave Jones or it's a close associate of well-known architect Dave, Dave Jones. Jo- I'm going to have to, we're going to have to do some digging it, here. Can I just, can I just make this, this, because obviously you can't see Andy hmm. and more, more's the pity for you lot, can I just, just say, because he looks resplendent. It sounds to me as though Andy is not desperately close to well-known architect Dave Apparently, Jones. according to Wikipedia, you are very close to your next-door neighbour. How would you describe your, he your actually borrowed, with your he, he definitely borrowed a power drill. <laughs> I passed a member passing it over the... That cements uh, any relationship. The, 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 the post and rail fencing between our properties. And, did you, and, did and he you, did take quite a long time to give it... And I thought he'd forgotten about it. But eventually he did give it. It was a very good Makita drill, and I did want it back with its own power pack. Do you think I got it back? I wonder who got the power pack. Do you think that he's got a room full of your of pictures of you? Well, this is slightly worrying. If he put that on, they had this like summer house built in the garden. That could what's going to be? That could be a shrine to me, couldn't it? Could be a very good one. I'm, I'm just going to edit the Wikipedia page to say Andy is very close to his next door neighbour, well-known architect Dave Jones, who in his garden has a summer house which also serves as a shrine. Yeah, and it's just a small amend. See if uh, Dave Jones goes back on the website and is um, very quick to edit that out. Well, I think there is a chance that Dave Jones, if if it is he who's added that onto Wikipedia, might well be listening to this podcast. Let's hope so. So, Dave. Yes. What, what, what message are we just to Stop well ed- editing <laughs> Andy Hinchcliffe's Wikipedia. And also, page. please mention that you're also very close to your set-piece menu co-hosts, Hugh, Rory and Steve, because I feel like our relationship yeah, goes I beyond anyone slighted. you have with Dave Jones. Yeah, yeah. but well known architect or not. When I hear that you have your own WhatsApp group that doesn't include me, that that's a worry, isn't it? That's just, Jinx chat. That's just, for, chat. That's just yeah. for deciding how we're going to divide up your uh, property portfolio. Really? Yeah. Including the Shrine Summer House, which is in the back garden of, of the next door the house. The other thing that we arrange on that is which of us... Uh, manicures your Wikipedia page. Um, by the way, if you have any questions for Andy about his Wikipedia page or not, you can send them to at setpiecemenu using the hashtag AskChinch. Keep the questions coming in. We'll collate them all together and one special show in the future uh, will make sure that we have those questions answered by Andy Hinchcliffe. Check out Wikipedia. Has it got my height and weight in there? Yes, five foot ten, it says. Five, I've never been five foot ten. I've got to be a good six foot. Weight? <laughs> no, it doesn't have your weight, Thank unfortunately. Thank God for that. Well, because it's fluctuated wildly. It, no, it yeah, doesn't. It does. I'm not Ricky Hatton. Your yo-yo weight issues. When have you seen me underweight? Okay, overweight, clearly. My whole playing career. But I've never been underweight, have I? There's some cracking pictures of you. When I, when I pulled up your Wikipedia page, James, there's some brilliant pictures of you, fresh-faced and smiling. I'll tell you really? what's upsetting. The Wikipedia yeah. page does not have a picture of you yet, so you're not that important. Uh, Please do subscribe, share and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Don't forget Twitter, at Set Piece Menu. Do uh, review us if you can. And not only via your words on Twitter, uh, but also on the iTunes website as well. We're very grateful for anything you can do uh, to inflate our egos massively and perhaps get the three of us a Wikipedia page at some point in the future. Separate pages. Uh, yeah, separate pages. Not as an addendum to Andy Hinchcliffe's. It's full of lies anyway. Uh, thanks to Steve, Rory and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very very soon i wonder if your own wikipedia page is like the same as a blue tick on twitter you'll have a blue tick of course i'm blue ticked but it's just it's been completely and utterly downgraded in value people who've got blue ticks it's just everybody now has got blue tick what does that mean i've not got blue tick